0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. For all those board eligible listeners out there, the next general surgery oral board exam is coming up and it's coming up quick in November. Now is the time to develop your study strategy. Let Behind the Knife help you out with our Oral Board Audio Review. Our review contains 92 scenarios covering 115 score core topics. The entire project contains more than 25 hours of content. Now, each scenario includes two parts. The first part is a perfectly executed Oral Board scenario that mimics the real thing. Scenarios are five to seven minutes long and include a variety of tactics and styles. Now, if you're able to achieve this level of performance in your preparation, you are sure to pass the oral boards with flying colors. The second part includes high yield commentary that's added to each scenario. And this commentary includes tips and tricks to help you dominate the most challenging scenarios. In addition to practical, easy to understand teaching that covers the most confusing topics we face as general surgeons. We're proud to say we have received rave reviews and are happy to offer the audio review at a fraction of the price when you compare to Osler or Pass Machine. In fact, we designed the oral board review to replace these courses. Learn more by visiting BehindTheKnife.org and clicking on the premium tab. Hey
1: everyone, it's your BTK Miami Trauma Group back again for another case presentation. We have me, Eva, I'm PGY4 in general surgery. Uri, our soon-to-be-graduated Trauma Fellow, congratulations. And Dr. Ratan, our trauma attending. Today, we will be doing a case presentation on penetrating great vessel injuries. We will focus on the proper approach to accessing these injuries, depending on the vessel injured, including the difference between the classic textbook approach and the real-life scenario approach. So let's just dive into our case. Okay, so you are in the trauma bay, and the radio goes off that there's a 27-year-old male with a stab wound to the neck. Vitals in the field are stable, and he is a GCS-13. What are some of the things you want to be thinking about when the patient arrives?
2: All right. Penetrating neck injuries can get extreme and rather quickly. So I would like to make sure OR and blood bank are aware of the patient. As for the trauma itself, there's an important role for the exact anatomical allocation of injury. Management depends on it. Where exactly the injury is might dictate our course of action. We generally divide the neck into three zones. Zone 1 being the most inferior, from the sternal notch clavicular line up to the cricoid cartilage. Zone 2 is mid-neck, from cricoid up to the angle of the mandible. And zone 3, being the most superior, is from the angle of the mandible up to the base of the skull. The zone will determine how we approach each, and that's due to the possible injuries and the necessary approach.
1: All right, so the patient arrives, and here's the primary survey. Airways patent. He has no dysphonia or hoarseness. He has no sub-Q emphysema. He has bilateral breath sounds. Respiratory rate is 20, and he's setting 98%. However, he's now tachycardic to the hundreds, and his blood pressure is in the 90s. He is still a GCS of 13, and you can see one stab wound in the left anterior neck, which you describe as a zone one injury. He has a large hematoma in the left neck with active audible bleeding, and there are no other injuries noted.
2: Okay, so it's a bleeding zone one left-sided injury we need to do a few things in a short time. I would begin with applying direct digital pressure over the bleeding neck wound, secure the airway, and assess for life-threatening conditions in the chest. All this while getting a large bar IV access, of course. To elaborate a bit, the direct digital pressure on uh, injuries is the first thing to do. It's the easiest in zone two, but it's also important to do in the lower or higher neck injuries, where pressing against the clavicle, for example, can rapidly turn a hypotensive patient into a stable one. With deeper injuries and when bones are fractured, this might get more difficult. That's where using a foley through the trajectory and inflating its balloon can also be considered. It might sound theoretical, but this actually works. As for the airway, with neck injuries that aren't superficial, I can't think of a situation where I would delay intubation since airway compromise is an immediate threat. Next, we'll be evaluating the pleural cavities. This is first and foremost clinically with a low threshold to use chest tubes and place them. Getting a chest x-ray and an efast that's nice, but only if we have the time. Ultrasound assessment for cardiac tamponade is uh, quick and important when the trajectory could be towards the heart, as in our case. So I would definitely do it. Another issue where we should think of is the use of a cervical collar. With penetrating neck injuries, especially where the trajectory is clear, This isn't mandatory and can actually interfere when we are trying to assess for a possibly expanding hematoma or when we prepare for intubation. So I would not recommend it unless there is a clear clinical suspicion of spinal injury. Now, after going through the primary survey, we should decide whether our patient has any of the hard signs of vascular or aerodigestive injuries, because all these mandate operative care. Any penetrating neck trauma with shock, with active bleeding, with an expanding hematoma, with a sub-Q emphysema, which is significant, Strider hematemesis, or hemoptysis, all require exploration. A neurological deficit is also considered a hard sign, mandating exploration. So our patient has shock, has an expanding hematoma, and active audible bleeding, which will send him to the OR as soon as we can. All this while I keep my finger pressing on his neck wound. When uh, a patient is stable with no hard signs, a patient can go for a CTA in order to define a possible trajectory and injury, and then decide on a possible course of action.
3: Just some quick notes for the initial assessment. An additional anatomical area that should garner high suspicion of cardiovascular injury is the cardiac box. Traditionally, the cardiac box was bounded by the clavicles, xiphoid, and midclavicular lines bilaterally. However, more recent autopsy data suggests that we should think of the box truly as a 3D box, extending around the left chest to the left posterior midline of the thoracic wall dorsally. Additionally, when we talk about zone 1 neck injuries, such as in this case, we are really talking about thoracic outlet injuries. So with the increase in high-energy penetrating wounds from gunshots, at least in the United States, trauma surgeons need to think outside the box, as these missiles can cause injury from just about any entry point into the thorax, and even outside the thorax. Once you've raised the possibility of a thoracic vascular injury, there are some pearls to remember. First, primary survey may reveal asymmetric blood pressure in the upper extremities. Conversely, even with a major thoracic vascular injury, the ipsilateral radial pulse may still be present due to collateral flow. So don't be lulled into a false sense of security just because of the presence of a distal pulse. IV access should be attained in the contralateral arm if one is worried about a subclavian vein injury. And for a possible superior vena cava injury, IV access is placed in the common femoral vein.
1: All right, Uri, so you've gotten all these things done. You have your large-bore IV, you've got MTP activated, you've got your ultrasound, which shows no pericardial effusion, and you also got your chest X-ray that shows no hemoneumothorax. So now you're rolling into the OR. What is your surgical approach to these injuries?
2: Rolling to the OR, I'm concerned for a zone one injury. This is a great vessel injury, and I'm looking for obtaining proximal control. The incision actually depends on the patient's status. If the patient is unstable, the approach should always be anterolateral thoracotomy. If the patient is stable and the injury is more distal, I would consider a supraclavicular approach for the subclavian control, allowing me to avoid a median sternotomy. However, here in this case, the injury appears to be fairly medial and the patient is bleeding. But if I can put a finger and get him to be more stable, I would proceed with a median sternotomy. This is usually the initial approach of choice for thoracic arch great vessel injuries and this is in order to obtain proximal control, of course, with selective extension according to exactly where the injury is as needed. How do we do it? So the incision is made with scalpel, of course, from the sternal notch and down under the xiphoid. Uh, We use electrocautery to deepen through the sternal periost. And next, it's time to quickly and bluntly dissect, finger dissect from both above and underneath the xiphoid, so we can get the sternum free deep down under, and then use hopefully a saw. But before operating it, we must have the anesthesiologist be asked to stop ventilation in order to avoid pleural injury. An alternative to using the automatic saw is a Lebski's knife and a hammer. That's not as bad as it might sound if you've never tried it. After the sternum is divided and retracted with a finochetto, we'll face mediastinal fat. Hopefully the hematoma will still be contained and we'll be encountering some kind of a fatty hematoma. And the first vessel we should be meeting and approaching is a brachiocephalic vein. What next?
1: Okay, so now that you get into the chest and opened up the mediastinum, you note a contained mediastinal hematoma at the superior midline. And then you also note pulsatile bright red bleeding that's coming from the left upper chest behind the clavicle. How can we achieve proximal control of this specific injury?
3: Oh man, proximal control of the left subclavian artery is a difficult one. And that's definitely what I'm worried about given the pulsatile bleeding from underneath the clavicle on the left side. It's important to remember that the actual anatomy of the aortic arch is not exactly like we see in the atlases where it's presented in a 2D fashion. Remember that the aortic arch also proceeds from ventral to dorsal. And further, the left subclavian artery origin is a bit posterior and not entirely superior. In the rare cases of ideal anatomy for exposure via sternotomy, or if there's a particularly experienced surgeon, it can be safely achieved with sternotomy alone. However, I would recommend a low threshold to extend your incision superiorly over the neck or laterally along the clavicle to assist. With either of these extensions, be prepared to dissect the relevant muscles off their clavicular insertions, and immaculate knowledge of anatomy is essential here, as there is a risk to the phrenic, vagus, and recurrent laryngeal nerves, as well as the thoracic duct. Overall, subclavian injuries can be quite challenging to expose with, in my opinion, left being harder than right. For the proximal injuries, as we mentioned, sternotomy is my first approach. For mid-subclavian injuries, I prefer an infraclavicular extension with removal of the clavicular diaphysis over a supraclavicular incision without clavicular resection which, while elegant and fun to do, I don't think achieves as good of exposure unless you know you just need to expose the supraclavicular portion of your subclavian artery to either move your proximal control closer to your injury or repair that portion. For distal subclavian injuries, the short portion of the distal subclavian artery that is present after it exits from underneath the clavicle but before it crosses the lateral border of the first rib becoming the axillary artery can be accessed without removing the clavicle. In my opinion, this all makes it sound much more straightforward than it is. Given the functional tunnel between the clavicle and first rib that the majority of the subclavian runs through, unless it's a perfectly proximal or distal injury, there's a good chance I'm removing the clavicle. When you do decide to remove the clavicle, a couple tips. First, while the subclavius muscle technically separates the subclavian vein from the underside of the clavicle, all these structures tend to be densely adherent in most patients. So isolation of the circumference of the clavicle needs to be undertaken meticulously so as not to injure the subclavian vein. If you're having trouble, you can always opt to dissect along the subperiosteal plane. Once the clavicle is isolated along its length, it should be resected through the bone, not through the joint. The sternoclavicular joint is fixed and thus its investing ligaments are quite tenacious and drastically slow down your exposure. Further, remember that we're working in a 3D space and your surgical field is deeper than the bone. In order to prevent working in a hole or having to re-resect more pieces of the clavicle, which takes time, ensure that your first resection is adequately wide enough. You usually need to take a wider section than you may think. And if you find that the subclavian vein is injured, once you do that, it's perfectly okay to ligate, especially in the face of our higher priority, most likely arterial injury here. After the case, if the patient is stable, clavicle can be fixed. Usually we use a drill and either steel wires or a plate. If the patient is unstable, You can put it on ice until the patient's more stable for repair. If you ligated the subclavian vein, wrap and elevate the ipsilateral arm and do serial assessments of the forearms for the need for forearm fasciotomy.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ratan. Wow, that was actually extremely helpful. Just as a resident myself and having done the ASIC course, the approach to the subclavian has always been something that's confused me, especially with the, the question of what to do with the clavicle. So I was actually a very excellent review of it and, and it made it a lot easier to understand, uh, at least from my point of view, for sure. Uh, another thing that's always been something that has confused me as a resident is when the best time to do an anterior lateral thoracotomy versus a sternotomy or when exactly to do a trapdoor incision. Is that something they can shed some light on for us? Well, I'll certainly try.
3: And yeah, it, it is a confusing thing. And it's one of those cases, I think, in the trauma world where what you read in the book isn't always necessarily what ends up happening in real life. So a couple notes on these exposures. First, as I mentioned, while the supraclavicular incision without removal of the clavicle is an elegant and straightforward approach. I think it only gives you great exposure of the short segment knuckle of subclavian that proceeds above the clavicle. If you do do this approach, perhaps to gain proximal control of a distal subclavian injury without a sternotomy, after you divide the platysma and the sternocleidomastoid, you'll be looking at the internal jugular vein medially and the anterior scalene fat pad laterally. Dissection through the fat pad will reveal the anterior scalene muscle running craniocaudally and just a hint of laterally. And immediately above it is the phrenic nerve and that's running superior lateral to inferior medial. Gently dissect and isolate the phrenic nerve, retract it medially, and then divide the anterior scalene, and you'll get to the subclavian just deep to it. Remember that the left will be a little bit deeper than the right, so don't lose hope if you've divided the scalene and don't immediately see the subclavian. This will allow proximal control for all but the most proximal subclavian injuries. Another option to get even more proximal control without a sternotomy, for example, in an unstable patient, is a high anterolateral thoracotomy. Exposure here is difficult. Even if you move up a rib space or two, it's really only beneficial to try and get some temporary control of the proximal subclavian while you figure out a better exposure. In the real world, chances are you'll be on your knees, crating your neck into a dark hole with a torrent of blood gushing towards you, obscuring your view. Sometimes all you need is a fist blindly, sometimes a pack, or for less destructive injuries, a sponge stick. Ideally, you'd be able to get enough visualization eventually to place a clamp around the proximal subclavian. If none of that works, I'd extend to a clamshell, which can give surprisingly decent exposure of the origin of the left subclavian. Finally, let's talk about the trapdoor. Trapdoor incision connects an anterolateral thoracotomy, sternotomy, and clavicular incision. If your patient is unstable, you don't actually have time to do all this, and you should just do a clamshell. If your patient is stable enough for sternotomy, Beware that the addition of a trapdoor is time consuming, can be perilous due to collaterals if you're not familiar with the anatomy, uh, pretty morbid, and actually doesn't get you that much more exposure. It does not actually open the chest like a trapdoor. And it's one of those incisions that looks super cool in the books and everyone wants to talk about and wishes that they could do, but it leaves a lot to be desired intraoperatively. I basically recommend against it. If your sternotomy doesn't get you your exposure, get proximal control and then resect the clavicle through your clavicular incision for more exposure of the injury. That's at least my opinion.
1: Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Rattan. Uh That actually explains a lot and helps me understand the elusive trapdoor finally. Um, and that's clarified a lot of questions that I've had regarding when to do which incision, uh, especially when it comes to realistic versus textbook scenarios. So anyway, back to our scenario. So we now have proximal control based off of the approaches that Dr. Ratan has so elegantly explained for us. So Uri, based on everything we've discussed, how would you visualize your injury and get distal control?
2: All right. I'm not sure I have uh, much choice now, but uh, I guess uh, I'll go for the uh, extension of an infraclavicular incision and take out the clavicle, which of course now leaves us needing to define the exact injury and establish the control in order to decide, do we repair, do we shunt, or do we replace with graft?
1: Okay, great. So now that you have proximal and distal control of the subclavian injury, you note a three-centimeter segment of the proximal to mid-subclavian that is completely destroyed. After you've debrided the edges of the injury, the entire segment of injury is about four centimeters. Now, generally, to repair the subclavian artery, this is usually done with a lateral arteriography if it is a small injury. These vessels are difficult to mobilize for primary elastomosis. Further, subclavians are very fragile, so unless there's a perfect short segment injury amenable to completely tension-free anastomosis, you should have a low threshold for graft. So larger injuries are repaired using PTFE interposition grafts, usually around 8 millimeters or depending on the size of the vessel. If there's a destructive proximal lesion, resetting the inflow to an uninjured portion of the aorta using a side biting clamp to preserve systemic flow during repair is an option. If you anticipate the repair will take greater than 30 minutes or there will be interruption to cerebral blood flow, perhaps due to a circle of Willis that is not intact, then you can place a temporary intravascular shunt. If the final repair abuts the trachea or esophagus, an interposition flap will need to be placed. You can use thymic tissue, fat, or muscle. Of note, the thyrocervical trunk and vertebral arteries can also be ligated as needed. So as
3: uh, you mentioned, Eva, most of the time in subclavian injuries, you're going to be putting in a graft. But because we're talking about great vessel injuries in general, and that includes things like aorta, um, major chest injuries can include the heart, I just want to include one little tidbit about my favorite suture. And one of my favorite suture options here is a permanent monofilament on an MH needle. While MH is not technically a vascular needle and is actually related to a small half-circle or SH needle, but it's a bit wider, so called the medium half-circle, i.e. MH, it's a wide but comparatively thin tapered needle. What's great about this needle, when you have significant bleeding from a vessel or something like that, is that its diameter is larger than most surgeons' fingers. So if you have a hole in a vessel or heart or solid organ that's just pumping blood in your face... You can place digital pressure over the hole and safely suture around your finger without ever having to remove it, especially if you're repairing with pledgets like on the aorta or the heart. The fact that the swedge is slightly bigger than suture, thus creating microholes in the vessel, won't actually matter because it's pretty close to suture thickness. Another quick note, actually, while we're on it uh, about exposure and repair in this area in general of thoracic vascular injuries is it's really important to remember your nerve anatomy. The vagus nerve travels between the left common carotid and left subclavian lateral to the transverse aortic arch and gives off the left recurrent laryngeal, which loops underneath the transverse aorta medially to the left common carotid and travels superiorly along the tracheoesophageal groove. So if you're in that area, beware. The right recurrent laryngeal nerve loops under the right subclavian artery, a couple centimeters, usually one to three centimeters, distal from its origin on the brachiocephalic artery before it travels superiorly. So you know if you're, for example, trying to get proximal control of the right subclavian artery, yes, it's easier, but you're more likely to be in the area of the right recurrent laryngeal nerve. And so you need to watch out for that before you put a clamp on it.
1: All right. Thank you for those pearls on how to repair the vessels. Can we take a moment to talk about the management of venous injuries? What can we do about them? Can we just ligate everything?
2: I would say mostly yes. Although- One might wish to primarily repair venous injuries, destructive injuries, mostly from gunshot wounds, but not only. To either jugular veins or subclavian veins could definitely be ligated. Similarly, brachiocephalic veins are relatively anterior and large, obscuring the carotids and can also be ligated. Those venous ligations require examining the forearm pressures, do the checks post-op, and possibly should also perform a fasciotomy of the forearm.
3: All great points, Yuri. You know, we we can't talk about vascular trauma these days without a comment on endovascular techniques. While in blunt thoracic vascular injury, endovascular intervention is increasingly becoming more common, even in major injuries, there are less broad indications in penetrating injuries. In stable patients with contained injuries, meaning grades one through three of vessel injury and excluding uh, higher grade things like total occlusion, transection, free rupture, endovascular repair is an option. However, this assumes both a readily available endovascular team as well as a trauma team in case the attempt fails or leads to a complication. Hybrid endovascular open options for proximal distal control with intraluminal balloons also exist and can aid in identification of the vessel in an open approach to a particularly destructive injury via palpation of the balloons. However, as one can imagine, this requires a very high resource center with not just readily available multidisciplinary teams, but usually also a hybrid OR. Another tool in the armamentarium, if needed, is Reboa for distal control of the descending thoracic aorta, if not easily accessible via whichever open surgical approach you are taking for your injury.
1: All right, so getting back to our case, in summary, we had a patient with a left-sided zone one injury that turned out to be a proximal subclavian injury. We began with a median sternotomy for proximal control because the patient was hemodynamically stable after applying pressure directly over the wound. We then extended this to be an infraclavicular incision when we noted bleeding from the left upper chest with suspicion for a left subclavian injury and resected the clavicle in order to get distal control of the subclavian. We ligated the subclavian vein, which was injured, and then the subclavian artery was repaired with PTFE graft. In our scenario, our patient was lucky and had no complications post-op. However, we should mention some of the common complications to look out for in these patients. In addition to the usual post-operative complications experienced by trauma patients, There's also a risk in these patients of brain complications, including CVA or cerebral edema, which is usually managed medically, plus or minus a venting drain. Another could be nerve injuries to the brachial plexus, the phrenic nerve, the vagus nerve, or the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which should be tagged and dealt with in a deferred manner by specialists. Injuries to the thoracic duct can be managed with ligation if identified in the OR by Kyle or with up to three weeks of no long-chain fatty acid TPN if identified as a chylothorax and ligation after fatty meal if it fails non-operative management. If ligation at the site of injury is not possible, ligation at the level of the diaphragm, IR embolization, and or pleurodesis options are rarely described, but they do exist. Okay, and with that, it's now time for our quick hits to summarize our learning points from this case presentation. So number one, remember the thoracic outlet for zone one neck injuries. Number two, hard signs of vascular or, or aerodigestive injury mandate going to the OR after applying local pressure. Number three, for the proximal injuries, go with sternotomy as first approach, unless the patient is hemodynamically unstable, for which you would do an anterior lateral thoracotomy. Number four, for mid-subclavian injuries, we prefer an infraclavicular extension with removal of the clavicle. Number five, for distal injuries, the short portion of the distal subclavian artery can be accessed without removing the clavicle. Number six, If you find that the subclavian vein is injured, it is perfectly okay to ligate. Actually, you can ligate almost any vein if needed for exposure or in a bind, but check forearm pressures and consider fasciotomies. And number seven, beware of the trapdoor incision. It is highly morbid, it isn't that great of an exposure, and it can be time-consuming. Okay, that's it for this case presentation by the Miami Trauma Team. Until next time, dominate the day.